Welcome to another reflection episode of One Step. This is a space for us to go deeper. I'll be looking back on last week's episode, sharing my reaction and yours too. I'm your host, Ingrid Nilsson, and last week on One Step, I talked to Chelsea Fagan, who's the founder of The Financial Diet, the leading digital destination for young women to learn and talk about money. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that interview, make sure to go and check it out. To say that there were a lot of things that came up for me while I was interviewing Chelsea would be an understatement. And now that I'm outside of that interview space, there have been so many more things that I've been thinking about. So I'm really excited to have this reflection space. I think money is a really complicated topic for so many of us. It's very complex. There's a lot of emotions and feelings and history wrapped up in money for us. And after doing this interview, I really started exploring my personal financial story more. One thing that I wanted to touch on, just because I remember Chelsea's face when I said this, growing up in a family that just wasn't traditional in so many different ways, where my mom came from another country and had an entirely different upbringing than my dad. My dad grew up during the Great Depression. It is true. My dad did grow up in the Great Depression, and that means that he had me when he was older. So my dad was in his early 60s when I was born, and I think just in general, this is something that I haven't talked about publicly just because privately I've experienced so much judgment for this, and I wasn't even in control of my parents meeting and getting married and having me and for so long I felt such a responsibility because I received so much judgment from people for having one parents that had a significant age gap between the two of them and two having a father who was a lot older than all of the other fathers of my peers. So I think the age thing can be discussed at another time because that's like a whole story within itself but I think my dad growing up during the Great Depression definitely in some ways informed the ways that I grew up. So I think when a financial crisis hits, everyone is going to be experiencing it in a different way and people are going to have different coping mechanisms. They're also going to come out of the experience in a different way. And my dad was pretty young when the Great Depression happened. He grew up in Southern California. He did not come from a family with substantial means at all. His father came over on a boat from Norway with his parents. My dad was raised with his younger brother by his father as a single father um, with his grandparents. So that was like their family unit. They went through a period where they lost their house. They just really didn't have very much at all, especially in the Great Depression. And I think this informed my dad's experience a lot because the way that he came out of this as an adult was that he did not place a lot of value on money, which is really interesting to me because you would assume that someone who grew up in the 
Great Depression would have a lot of anxiety about money. But my dad was almost on this extreme side of money is a means to survive and you need some of it, but it's not going to be like what makes your life. And so he really didn't put a lot of thought into, you know, creating um financial stability and really lived paycheck to paycheck didn't really have savings which is he didn't have life insurance which is why when he died unexpectedly we were left with a lot of debt after my dad died um so I think it's just really interesting how that informed his experience where not having money made him realize, oh, I need some money, but I don't really have a desire to have a lot of it. And I think it was probably because there was a fear around having a substantial amount of money and then what it could possibly be like to lose it after seeing people during the Great Depression go from, you know, maybe having some money to then having nothing. And my dad definitely grew up in a circumstance where they had a house and then they didn't have a house. And so I can definitely connect the dots and I'm still in the process of that. And it's also difficult too because he's not alive anymore. So I can't talk to him about this. So I can really only make assumptions and connect dots based off of what he told me. But I think this definitely informed my experience too, because one of the perspectives that I hold is very similar to my dad's, which is you need money, but it's not what is going to bring you deeper happiness. You need money to survive, but it's not going to be the end all be all to like a meaningful, deep, fulfilling life. And then on the other side of that, my mom's perspective is, you know, money will fix everything. And she was also very responsible with her money. And she didn't make a lot of money, but she really tried to do the best that she could with it and be as literate as possible. And so I've really found myself with their two values where I can see both of them inside of me. And because they are such conflicting values, I'm like, oh, this is why I have so many issues around money. (laughs) This is part of it for sure. Um, And I'm still unpacking that and dissecting it. But this is kind of like the point where I am now. And it's just interesting to like trace back specifically my dad's experience and to see how that has related to me. Another thing I have thought about since talking to Chelsea is this. To me, when you are dishonest about your financial privilege or you're dishonest about what allowed you to get to where you are, what allows you to live the life you do, I consider that on some level a form of gaslighting people because you know how you're choosing to portray yourself. And if you're choosing to portray yourself as an independent person who's just working hard and and has these things through the grace of your own work, you know that all the people around you who are at the same office even will be like, what am I doing wrong? That I do not have access to these same things. And so to me, that lack of honesty that a lot of people have that lack of ability or like when people start a company and they'll have a narrative like the only reason our company was able to get off the ground was because I could afford to take zero dollars as a salary for two years period and that's because my husband had a good job 
period. And also insurance, obviously. But like, I would not, like TFD would not have gotten off the ground with that. For most people, for a lot of people anyway, it's either savings, family m money, or a spouse. Like those are the three options really. Like you otherwise, you know, you don't, you don't earn money at the beginning or very little. But when people are not honest about that, and when you'll see people giving interviews about how they got where they are, they will very often go out of their way to avoid the parts of the story that aren't flattering to them. Mm -hmm. Whether that's about starting a business or just how you live. And again, in New York, it's very common. And that to me, I have a very hard time with and it's very hard for me not to feel like actively angry about it. This not only has always frustrated me, especially when I hear interviews with really successful people, especially when they're white and they've come from really privileged circumstances, which often they're not in control of. Like they were like born into this life. So it wasn't like their choice to like be put there, but they're so afraid to acknowledge that and to say that, you know, maybe they had substantial investment from people that they knew and that, you know, their parents were able to pay for college for them or pay for whatever for them. Similar to what Chelsea was saying is that there's usually always a deeper financial story around success. And it got me thinking about, okay, what are the financial points for me within my career trajectory that allowed me to get to the place where I am now. And I see the life-changing moment for me as the YouTube Next Up contest, which I believe is something that still happens now, but it's very different from the first generation, which is the one that I was a part of. And I don't really remember all of the details of the contest I do remember you had to submit multiple rounds of videos there was a community voting round one or two of them and then there was also an internal YouTube vote that happened with people that worked at YouTube and basically this next up contest was created to find emerging people on YouTube and so I was one of the winners of this YouTube contest. It was a public contest, so people knew about it. Um, YouTube flew us out. The group of us, I think, was around 15 people. I don't remember the exact number now. But they flew us all out to New York for five days for basically a YouTube camp in New York City, which is really crazy because we're recording this at the YouTube space. And I'm like, oh, my God, I was here for that next up contest. The space wasn't what it is today, but I remember coming to Chelsea Market to the offices and they brought in, you know, different entrepreneurs, um, the YouTubers at the time who were making YouTube a full-time job because at that point it was just starting to be a possibility for people to really turn this into a business and we were seeing like the very 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 top tier a very very small amount of people like if you think there's a small amount of people making YouTube a full-time job now I'm talking about you could probably count everyone on both of your hands that were making a full-time job out of YouTube at this time. They brought in all of these different people to talk to us. We had different assignments that we had to do that challenged our creativity. So that was all great. But at the end of it, they also let us go to B&H Photo and 
we had $500 to spend on whatever equipment we wanted. So I bought myself a Canon T3i camera, which I still have today and love and cherish. And it's on my shelf of memories because that was like the first real camera I ever had. Um, And I just filmed so many videos on that camera. So I got that camera and we all knew that there was going to be prize money involved, but we thought surely they're going to divide this $30,000 amongst us because we knew there was like a $30,000 prize, but we thought it's def- it definitely has to be divided amongst all of us. But then on the last day, they gave each one of us an envelope with a check with our individual names on it for $30,000. And I did not know what to do with myself. I had never seen that much money before in my life. I never thought that I would ever have that much money. I never thought that I would be in physical possession of a check written for that amount of money. And I just remember being in shock, putting it in my carry-on bag and checking about every five minutes on the plane to see if that check was still there because I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And that was life-changing money for me. At that point, I was definitely growing and on the path of potentially turning this into a full-time job, but this $30,000 changed my life because one, It allowed me to have savings, to have a nest egg. It allowed me to move out of my mom's house. It allowed me to get more equipment to shoot my videos. And this money was no strings attached money too. So there was no obligation. There was like no check-in from YouTube. You could just do what you felt like you needed to do with that money. And that changed the course of my career for me because I had autonomy. I had independence. I was able to move into Los Angeles and have proximity to then meeting people. And Next Up allowed me to make connections with other creators who then introduced me to other people and then eventually introduced me to management, which then connected me to working with brands. And I see how it all traces back to that $30,000. And that $30,000 allowed me to start paying off my $30,000 of debt from going to art school. I could breathe a little bit and invest in myself because someone else had chosen to invest in me. And that changed everything. And honestly, that probably wouldn't have happened in any other way. I was, you know, pursuing something that at the time no one really understood. There's really no way that I could see myself getting money anywhere else. And it was just, it's mind-blowing to me that like YouTube just gave us that money because I don't think that they do that now. And I don't think they have ever done it for, um, any other next up generation. So, you know, I know how powerful that $30,000 has been for me. And I think it's important to, you know, talk about that and acknowledge that because I tell this to people in person, um, but I've definitely never talked about it in detail like this 
before, even though this was like all public knowledge when it happened that we all won prize money. But, you know, I look at all of the people who were in Next Up and everyone used that money in a different way. It changed everyone's life in a different way. And some people from that class aren't even on YouTube anymore, but it just goes to show that there are significant financial moments in our paths to success. And this one for me was about being in a circumstance that so many people did not understand. I was also in a genre that people really didn't take seriously. People just kind of like laughed at beauty and YouTube took it seriously and was like, we are going to invest in you and give you money. And I just don't think that I would have received that in any other way. The last thing that is also kind of connected to this story of getting $30,000 from YouTube is when Chelsea said this. One of the biggest issues in poverty is how easy it is to get sucked into really, really damaging financial situations from small inconveniences. For example, you get a parking ticket, you can't pay the parking ticket, you get the like red flag notices, you get, you know, the ticket compounds. You know, I've had it happen with moving violations when I had no money to pay. What happens when you don't pay your moving violations? They eventually will suspend your license, suspend your tags. I got arrested for having that. Like, and then I ended up having to pay over the course of however long thousands of dollars because I also had to go to court and all that stuff. All because of a $90 ticket that I couldn't pay at the time. I completely related to what she was talking about because I remember not long after I started driving, I was probably like two years into driving maybe, I rear-ended someone at a gas station and I called my mom crying because at that time I was working a part-time job at Abercrombie & Fitch and my mom was really just struggling to make ends meet for me, herself, and my grandma. And I called her sobbing because I knew that there was going to be some kind of money involved in this situation because I had hit another car, there was a dent, and I was like, oh my god, this is going to spiral into so many other things, and I'm freaking out, and this is all my fault. I remember that conversation, and I remember my mom being very wonderful to me in that moment when I was not expecting it at all, especially because we were still in the difficult time in our relationship with each other, like the very difficult time. And so fast forward to after winning that $30,000 from YouTube, I got a speeding ticket, which is shocking to me because I do not drive fast. But I remember I was driving around the Marina del Rey, Culver City area, and I just wasn't paying attention to the speed limit. And I think I was like five to 10 over the speed limit. And I didn't see like the highway patrol there. She pulled me over and stopped me, gave me a ticket. And that was the first time that I realized, oh, I can go home and pay this ticket online myself. I'm not freaking out about not being able to pay this, where that is going to take me, and the whole like spiral vortex that I can fall into. I had this immense sense of comfort, and it was so new to me to be able to go online and pay off the 
ticket in its entirety on my own because of that $30,000. And that's where it ended. And that was it. I remember this moment so vividly because it was such a huge shift for me. And again, it was because of that money. Now let's move into your reflections. Last week, I asked you to share your thoughts on my conversation with Chelsea. Here's what you had to say. Hey, Ingrid. This particular podcast is very poignant in my life right now. Um, I recently broke up with my partner who I had been living with for two years. Um, For weeks leading up to the breakup, I would sit at my desk at work and calculate out my finances to make sure that I could afford everything on my own while essentially buying out my partner by giving them money for the couch that we bought, half of the security deposit, et cetera, et cetera, and knowing I would need to invest in a lot of household items that I didn't bring into the relationship. It was not a fun situation. I'm still dealing with the residuals of it, especially, you know, when you're, you really want to get out of a relationship, but being able now to have control of my finances on my own and figure out how to live on my own financially has been an an incredibly empowering experience too. Hi, um, Ingrid. We have a real housing kind of crisis happening here in New Zealand and it's severe and basically housing prices are just skyrocketing because we have limited numbers of houses and we have limited amounts of land to build more houses and all of the people that are my parents' age and older own all the houses and so there's this kind of huge bubble of of housing ownership and then there's people like me and the people younger than me who if they don't have student debt are in a situation where rent is so high and the cost of rent is so high and the cost of a lot of other things is very high as well so there's kind of this really big gap where you know people my parents age owned a house before they were 25 whereas there is a very small like less than five percent of people that are in their late 20s that are able to buy houses and um, I have a couple of friends who recently purchased houses and I was absolutely devastated when I found out and you know they were saying you know it's something that we've always wanted it's something that we've you know we've worked really hard at I mean I was happy for them um, that they were achieving a dream of theirs because they're my friends but I was absolutely devastated because I felt like I had failed because I looked at my savings account and I saw $3,000 and that to me was a lot of money it was $3,000 but I did not have $20,000 to give to the bank to get any kind of loan, um, to even get a mortgage, to even do that. And I'm not saying that we should do that. Um, I'm currently reading a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it's amazing. And it talks about whether or not a house is an asset or a liability, but that's a whole other conversation. But basically, it wasn't until I started asking them kind of about money that I was able to be kind of liberated from the sense of failure. And the reason for that is that I would ask them, so how are you affording this? You know, how much was it? And just asking these questions that other friends of mine kind of felt were inappropriate. I just really wanted to know. And I was just being, I felt I was being nosy, but I was like, I know these people, I've been friends with them for years, I should ask them, how are they affording it? And the answers were really surprising. One of my friends, basically her parents bought the house and 
therefore they were the ones taking the loan, you know, taking the money to the bank and getting the loan and they were the ones taking the financial risk. And then effectively she's buying the house off of them. Another friend of mine literally had a trust fund from her family. They did some complicated accounting and just basically gave her a trust fund so that she could buy a house for $800,000. So finding out all of this made me feel way less like a failure. It also made me feel really angry about how the wealth distribution is in the country. Yes, money conversations are really important. And yes, learning about financial literacy is really, really useful. And um, yes, uh, eager and listening for more. Thanks. Bye. Thank you to everyone who sent us a message. If you want to send your feedback for future episodes, you can always leave me a voicemail at 551-333-9021, or you can send a voice note over to onesteppodcast at gmail.com. I'll continue to share your opinions, and I can't wait to hear them. Thank you so much to everyone who's out there listening. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And share it with a friend too. Let's get more conversations about money going. Maybe even ask your friends and your family what their relationship with money has been like. I've learned so much just by asking other people what their stories are. You can find One Step on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at One Step Podcast to stay up to date. Thank you to our producer, Christina Cleveland, our sound engineer and editor, Tung Chen, and our studio, the YouTube space in New York City. Take care and talk soon.